You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. Once upon a time, a woman ran for president. She had a long history of women's rights activism and was known for being active in politics. She had a history of being embroiled in sex scandals. Her presidential campaign received intense backlash, and the media depicted her alternately as weak and hysterical and conniving and evil. In the end, the campaign was unsuccessful, and her male opponent won the election. If you think we're talking about Hillary Clinton in the election of 2016, you're wrong. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. I know it's like the least surprising (laughs) joke ever, but still. (laughs) We're actually talking about uh, Victoria Woodhull, another woman, presidential candidate, who ran for the highest office in the nation in 1872, well before women even had the right to vote. Victoria Woodhull was an advocate of free love, an outspoken advocate for women's rights and suffrage, a spiritualist medium, a stockbroker, a sex worker, an all-around force of nature. She might be one of the most controversial women in American history, which means that she is one of our favorites. For this episode of our series on women, we are talking about the life of the groundbreaking, rule-breaking Victoria Woodhull. I am Sarah. And I'm Averill. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. Galuba, luba, luba. Crunk, 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 crunk. Twerk, 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 twerk. <laughs> That's how you would dance to that music. <laughs> you have to narrate your dancing. As you <laughs> <laughs> sprinkler, sprinkler, sprinkler. <laughs> From the moment she was born, Victoria Woodhull knew she was different. 
She was born into a large family in the tiny farming town of Homer, Ohio. The family had a bad reputation. One author referred to them as the town's trash. It's kind of him. I assume it was a him. It was not. It was not. No. Well, kind of her. Part of the reason for this bad reputation was the family's constant problem with money. Uh, another reason was Victoria's father, one-eyed Reuben Buckman Claflin. <laughs> Literally every part of the story is bizarre. One-eyed Buck. One-eyed Buck was a notorious con man and criminal. Uh, so, yeah, he gave the family a pretty bad reputation. Right. According to a neighbor in Homer, Buck, quote, could see more deviltry to do with that one eye than any two men with their four eyes. <laughs> Why did two... Oh, two men have four yeah, eyes. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it took me a minute. I was like, a guy with glasses? No. <laughs> <laughs> two, two men. Two yeah, men have yeah. two eyes. Buck loved nothing more than to drink and gamble and swindle. Yet another reason was Victoria's mother, Roxana Hummelclaflin... Why do they have so many names? It just gets worse from here, too. Okay. Also known as Anna. Well, she went by Anna. Anna was a religious zealot who was known to stand outside of public buildings in Homer, praying fervently for her neighbors, sometimes crying and screaming about sin and salvation. Real gem. Yeah, yeah. I find uh, Victoria Woodhull, um, at the at the time that she was, when she was young, Victoria Claflin's uh, family's origins so fascinating because it seems as though her parents, one a common criminal and the other an emotional religious zealot, deeply influenced two major components of her character, as we'll see as we go through this episode. A criminal zealot? Uh, no, um, more a ability to constantly adapt herself to her situation and kind of seize on um seize on pr in a way to market herself mm. which is what we'll see buck does mm. um as we go through oh, and and her fuck. mother um this kind of like very emotional religious thing she kind of combines those two things together to create this like mm. interesting uh personality traits cool anyway um Buck often capitalized on his wife's spiritual nature. Starting immediately in their in their marriage, Buck trotted Anna, or Roxy, as she was sometimes called when she was young, into taverns to tell fortunes. Anna put on a good show. She would take money from women in these taverns, go into a dramatic trance, speak with the Virgin Mary, and then offer her clients a message. And I, I want to be very careful here. Um, and throughout the episode, not to be dismissive of what Anna was doing. And from everything that I've read, Anna truly believed in at least an element of what she was doing. Again, this is a theme that we'll see with her daughter, Victoria, and her other daughter, Tennessee. But whether she believed it or not, her husband, Buck, helped turn that belief into a business. Ecstatic religion played a role in Victoria Woodhull's very conception, uh, or at least according to her. Um, like the bow chicka bow bow conception. literally yeah. yes in 1837 in in the height of the great second second great awakening <laughs> the great second, second awakening <laughs> <laughs> oh god the second great awakening uh buck and anna claflin attended a methodist tent revival on a cold night people had packed into a tent to hear an itinerant preacher speak the gospel like most traveling preachers, he had crafted the sermon to elicit a powerful emotional response. He started with a reminder that the people in attendance were disgusting sinners <laughs> facing eternity burning in agony. 
Then he reminded them that they could be saved if only they begged for God's mercy. In the end, the goal was the conversion experience to bring the listener to the point of accepting God's grace. Anna Claflin was swept up in the intensity of the preaching. First, she started to sweat, and then she stood up and threw off her hat. <laughs> Scandalous. Uh, finally, she started shouting and speaking in tongues. I wonder what tongues. She was screaming things like, Class me to you. I'm coming to you. And I'm born again in the Lamb's blood. At this point, her husband, Bucky, grabbed her. <laughs> Don't say I can't say Bucky. I think he'd be a good Bucky. That's fine. You can call him Bucky if you want. At this point, Bucky grabbed her, pulled her to the floor behind the bench, pulled up her skirts, and had sex with her right then and there. Thus, according to Victoria herself, is how she came to be. (laughs) I was screaming writing this. Like, I was (laughs) like, are you kidding me? Like, they're at a tent revival, and they're just... Banging on the floor. Okay. Seems, well, you know, everyone's busy. Yeah, 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 yeah. They were caught up in the moment. Yeah, they didn't notice. Okay, so uh, Victoria was born in 1838, and she was named after the queen that was crowned the same year as her birth. The Claflins were not particularly good parents. They lived in filth and squalor. They had no outhouse, so the entire family used hastily dug holes in the ground around their farm. Pigs wandered around aimlessly. All of the children slept on the floor, some in the kitchen, some in the cellar, some ostensibly in bedrooms. Maybe. <laughs> Neighbors could hear children crying and arguing all day and often had hungry little Claflins begging at their back door for food. The family was always in the midst of emotional, financial, and spiritual chaos. Anna regularly tortured the children with terrifying religious lectures about the devil, and Buck beat them and required them to work incredibly hard. Buck and Anna continued to sell Anna's spiritual powers, although her product morphed eventually into forms of spirit healing inspired by the trend in mesmerism, the quack medical practice of healing with electricity and magnets. Anna believed that she had the power to heal through electric energy and often treated her children, sometimes Uh, for physical ill health, and then other times for spiritual ill health by laying her hands on them. Effective. Young Victoria, the seventh of ten children, often fled to neighbors to escape the chaos of the Claflin home. Rachel Scribner, the 21-year-old daughter of the Claflin's closest neighbors, became a kind of sister figure for Victoria, often bringing her back to her clean and organized home for meals. Rachel even helped Victoria learn to read and write, But suddenly, Rachel contracted cholera and died within a matter of hours. Jesus. Yeah. It was then that Victoria had her first true introduction to the spirit world. Heartbroken over losing her mentor and probably her only friend. Right. She was walking in an apple orchard when the spirit of Rachel Scribner came to her and escorted her into a realm of spirits. She met the spirits of famous people. Because they were wandering around the spirit world in America. With Rachel Scribner. With Rachel Scribner. Like Napoleon and Josephine, who told her that they were going to serve as her spirit guides, helping her to create peace on Earth. In her memoirs, Woodhull describes knowing somehow that she was connected to the spirit world since before she was born. Uh, Yes, that's correct. She believed that she had a memory of her soul before it entered her body. Yes. But this was her first real contact with the guides that would aid her for the rest of her life. 
Victoria told her mother about her experience, who encouraged her daughter's interaction with the spirits. Not only had Victoria inherited her mother's tendency to all things spiritual, she had also inherited her ability to sell that connection. By the time she was 10, Victoria had had experiences of spirit healing. For example, when her two-year-old sister, Tennessee, who would later become her closest companion in life, was extremely sick with pneumonia, Victoria fell into a trance and saw two angels approach the baby. They touched Tenny with their hands and breathed upon her. When Anna came back into the room, their mother came back into the room, Victoria was in a daze and Tenny was suddenly healthy. That same year, 1848, just outside of Rochester, New York, the Fox sisters began the movement that would become known as spiritualism when they learned how to communicate with a spirit by asking it to make knocking noises. Buck was in a particularly difficult financial place in 1848, having skipped town after committing both insurance fraud and mail fraud. His crimes led to the rest of the family being driven out of Homer, Ohio. When the family rejoined Buck, he started to capitalize on his daughters, Vicky and Tenny's spiritual powers. Little Tennessee had long been seen by friends and neighbors as having powers of premonition and mind reading. For instance, she had awoken from a nightmare screaming about a building on fire. Just weeks later, a nearby school burned to the ground. Um, it actually mirrored what she had said um, she had seen in this trance so much that they actually thought that she burned the building down. She was known for finding things and for knowing other people's thoughts. Buck seized on these skills, along with Victoria's mediumship and spirit healing abilities, and began to sell his daughters as an attraction. Essentially, Buck exploited them. He beat the girls and kept them on the edge of starvation, believing that it sharpened their uh, spiritual abilities. Victoria later insinuated that her father also sexually abused at least her. Um, Whether or not he abused Tennessee is is not clear. No, she doesn't make that claim. Um, When she was 14, Victoria became dangerously sick. Her parents went to a local doctor named Canning, maybe Channing, not Tatum. Um, (laughs) Woodhull. Yeah, some some people, I, I guess he wrote it both ways or something in documents. And so some of her biographers call him Canning and some of them call her, him Channing. I really hope his name wasn't Canning. <laughs> yeah, it was probably it's Channing terrible because name. that's an actual name. Yeah. And Canning is not. Canning is not. It's a, it's a practice to put, put up vegetables. Mm-hmm. Pickles. Pickles. Not only did Woodhull help get Victoria on her feet again, but he fell in love with her. He begged her to ask her parents to allow them to marry, even though she was only a teenager and he was uh, nearly 15 years older than her. Yeah. Probably because it seemed like a way to escape from the abuse and exploitation. Victoria eloped with Channing, we'll say Channing, Woodhull in 1853. And thus became Victoria Woodhull. That's the name she used for the rest of her life. Woodhall did help pull Victoria out of her abusive and chaotic family, but his alternative wasn't much better. The doctor was a philandering, alcoholic, morphine addict. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Hitting all of the high points there. Mm. After only a few days of marriage, Woodhall left home and started living full time in a brothel, spending all of the couple's money on alcohol and uh, I'm assuming prostitutes. Yes. Activities. Soon, Victoria learned that Woodhall was also sending money to a woman in Terre Haute, Indiana, who had given birth to Woodhall's son. 
Soon, however, Victoria herself was pregnant. In 1854, she gave birth to a son, Byron. Byron was what we would call today developmentally disabled, and Victoria gave different explanations throughout her life, um, depending on what situation she was in, why she was telling the story. Mm -hmm. She gave different versions of uh, her interpretation of why he was disabled. Sometimes she said that uh, Canning Channing Woodhall had kicked her in the stomach while uh, Byron was in the womb. Other times she said that Byron had fallen as a baby and hit his head. Other times, she said it was her own fault. Um, she blamed herself. After Byron's birth, Victoria gave up on waiting at home for Woodhull to change his ways. Good, good, good job. Um, one night, she burst into the brothel where he was staying and chewed him out. She was enraged that she was hungry, cold, and lonely while he was lounging around being petted by sex workers. Uh, and apparently, this did the trick because he... The hum- the humiliated husband stood up and walked out with Victoria, determined to change his ways. Soon after, the couple and Byron moved to San Francisco. But even though the young city was full of opportunity, they struggled to make ends meet. Victoria tried her hand at a number of jobs uh, before becoming an actress, like on stage. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Essentially like a burlesque performer. Okay. Not like she was becoming, she became like a Shakespearean actress or no, something. Right, yeah. yeah. Oh. They just called it acting. what she was doing acting. Okay. Yeah. Victoria tried her hand at a number of jobs before becoming an actress, although acting is not really what she was doing. Victoria and the girls she worked with dressed up in revealing costumes and danced. When the show ended, the real money making began as dancers joined male patrons for drinking, flirting, and yes, sex. Right. Now, Victoria didn't last long in this profession. According to her memoir, one night while she was on stage, Victoria was overcome with a vision of her little sister, Tennessee, and her mother, Anna, calling her home. She left the stage immediately, and within hours, she, her husband, and her son were on their way to join Tenny and Anna, who were at that point in New York City. By the time they were reunited, the Claflins were suddenly prosperous. Buck was effectively pimping Tennessee out. He had the girl working 13-hour days, reading fortunes, and shilling his bogus patent medicines. At this point, Tennessee is like 12, 13, 14 years old. Whatever raw power Tenny had wasn't good enough for her father. He required that she use shysty methods to get inside information about clients before reading them. In some cases, Buck even visited local cemeteries to read gravestones and do research before sending Tenny into a hotel or tavern to perform readings. This really disgusted Victoria, who believed that her and her sister's powers were real. But at least he was putting the work in. <laughs> I guess. So within a few months with her family, Victoria was gone again, uh, committed to using her powers to make a living, but unwilling to cooperate with her father's unethical practices. Victoria sold her services as a spirit healer, performing something like, I guess, what we would call Reiki. Yeah, sort of spirit healing, energy healing. No touching, but just energy. I think that she did touch people. Oh, you know, touch. Reiki now, you know, it's... No touching. You, you don't actually lay hands, but I right. think then they did. Uh, but that, unfortunately, did not pay the bills. And so soon, Victoria was pregnant again and struggling to support herself, Byron, and her no-good doctor husband who couldn't keep it together. Right. 
When her second child was born, her doctor husband delivered the baby. He's good for something. But as soon as the child was born, he took off. Like, literally, as soon as the baby left her body, he he took off. Like, he left her completely? Yes. No, he, he left and he was like, brothel. he was drunk while she was giving birth. And so he was like, I'm out. Yeah. Gross. Uh, Victoria awoke later, hours later, to find that uh, Channing Woodhull had only cut partially through the baby girl's umbilical cord and hadn't tied it off, meaning that the baby was slowly bleeding to death. So desperate and weak herself, Victoria rescued the baby and used a piece of broken chair to bang on the wall for help. Um, she, at that point, had had enough of one Channing Woodhull, and she left and sought a divorce. And by the way, she named her baby Zulu Maud. Which I really love. Shaka Zulu. Yes, exactly. Zulu Maud. And I, I've never seen why, like where did she came up with the name Zulu, but I just, I think it's fantastic. Before long, Victoria had rejoined the Claflin family and was roped again into Buck's money-making schemes. Buck, at this point, was passing himself off as a doctor and selling quack cures for cancer specifically cancer. He traveled through towns shilling his fake medicines accompanied by Victoria and sisters, Tennessee and Utica. (laughs) I know it's so great. Their names are just wonderful. Uh, The girls were very beautiful and accusations cropped up in many of these towns that Buck was pimping his daughters out. So not only is he selling their sort of um, spiritual powers and using their beauty as one of the, um, allures for that but he was probably also acting as their pimp he of course still exploited the girl's spiritual powers which were in higher demand than ever during the civil war which helped to make tennessee actually a bit of a celebrity but buck always took things up a notch he used tenny's reputation as a psychic and spirit healer to sell a cancer cure he's selling it all under her name his name is actually not associated with it Um, to sell this cancer cure that would be administered to live in patients at an infirmary that they created um, with the lovely daughters acting as nurses and spirit healers in this infirmary. Tenny, the most famous daughter, would be the one who applied the cure, which was a concoction that was painted onto the skin over the affected area. It was an incredibly caustic substance. One of the um, sources that I had said that it was made out of lye. Patients screamed and suffered. Victoria later recalled looking under the sheets at the patient's bodies and seeing open, festering wounds and exposed cartilage. So Buck, as he was wont to do, had taken things too far. He took out an ad in a newspaper purportedly from a cured patient. It read, quote, Mrs. Rebecca Howe, recovering from a dangerous situation after treatment by Miss Tennessee Claflin, wishes to thank this remarkable child and recommends she be consulted for cancer treatment, end quote. Rebecca Howe had been a real patient, treated for breast cancer. Buck relied on the fact that women typically don't talk openly about breast cancer. Uh, but Howe was not having it. Uh, She went to the local newspaper and testified that the cure had not only not cured her cancer, but had caused so much suffering that she prayed for death. She blamed not Buck, but Tennessee, who was the one publicly associated with the treatment. Concerned that something bad might be happening at the Claflin Infirmary, 
the local police raided it and discovered patients dying in pain, bleeding and laying in their own filth, utterly neglected. The same day, Rebecca Howe died. The local authorities issued charges against the Claflins for manslaughter. And someone tipped off the Claflin clan and they skipped town to uh, escape the charges. This would not be the last time that they faced charges for various different things. They didn't give up the business, though. They moved from town to town, shilling patent medicines and selling sex. In 1865, Victoria again ventured out on her own, led by the spirits to St. Louis. This is where Victoria met a Union veteran named Colonel James Harvey Blood. Blood, uh, during the Civil War, had been shot five times, including twice in the thigh, but he had survived, although with serious pain and impairment. He accompanied his wife at the time to visit a quote-unquote Madame Holland, who was offering spirit healings for quote-unquote female complaints. So he's going with his wife to visit the spirit healer. Um, I'm assuming that his wife was having some sort of um, gynecological problem because of um, that's why they were they went madam holland was in actuality victoria claflin woodhall victoria did not cure his wife instead she and blood fell madly in love before long blood divorced his poor suffering wife and skipped town with vicky not long after the claflin clan finally pissed off the wrong tavern keeper when the local residents lost their patience with their informal house of prostitution at this point buck was making tennessee entertain up to 10 men a night and so she was exhausted understandably and fed up this time when they were kicked out tennessee packed her things and escaped to victoria and colonel blood the trio traveled from town to town, earning their living with a combination of selling more sex and spiritual services. Victoria and Colonel Blood made their official... Oh, by the way, I just want to say, he is always referred to as Colonel Blood. Like, they never refer to him as James, so that's how I refer to him in this. But it makes it... it just makes this trio sound even more amazing, right? It's like Victoria and Tennessee and Colonel Blood. Colonel Blood. (laughs) In the garden with the pickaxe yeah yeah so victoria and colonel blood made their relationship uh official um sort of in 1866 they actually did not marry because they had developed a belief in free love which at the time was a growing component of utopian and new religious thought movements Blood himself, Blood, was a spiritualist and made it his mission to refine and educate what he saw as raw talent in Victoria. Victoria devoured information about the new religious movements like Fourierism, our favorite. Yes. Our favorite utopian (laughs) movement. In 1871, Victoria summed up her thoughts about free love thus. Quote, yes, I am a free lover. I have an inalienable and constitutional and natural right to love whom I may, to love as long or as short a period as I can, to change that love every day if I please. And with that right, neither you nor any law you can frame have any right to interfere. (laughs) So awesome. Um, And we'll come back to her her commitment to free love and, and the speech in which she gives that quote later on. But I just want to point out here that So I consulted two different biographies of Victoria Woodhall putting this together. Mm -hmm. And one biography says that um, when she divorced Canning Woodhall, Channing Woodhall, and Blood divorced his wife, they then married 
and mm. were married for a very short period and then got divorced in protest of marriage mm. laws, right? So they married and then divorced. Then one of those sources says that they got remarried at some point, but doesn't give a, a date. Hmm. Um, but then the other source says that they never actually officially married. Hmm. Um, so I, I don't know what the what the truth is there. And part of the problem is that Victoria Woodhall herself told many different stories about her own life. Hmm. So it's very hard to pinpoint um, what is true and what is was a fiction that she created in order to sort of sell herself as a free lover, if that yeah. makes sense. So to me, Victoria's quick acceptance of free love actually makes complete sense. After all, she and Tenny had often made a living selling sex, so she already saw it as something disconnected from marriage and from ideas of purity and morality. She had dissatisfying monogamous relationships. Her husbands had never had traditional ideas about sex or marriage and indeed enjoyed sharing her with other men. Plus, she grew up in a family that paid no respect to the law and disregarded the way that things were done. This is one of the many times when researching Victoria Woodhull that I just found myself awestruck by her. I mean, that quote that you just read, Averill, is something that you could hear today, right? This kind of insistence on having a right to do with your body what you want. And um, I, I think that it's still revolutionary when people make these arguments today. People still are not quite ready to hear this kind of argument about sex even now. So uh, I listened to this podcast that's hosted by Dan Savage called Savage Love. And um, what struck me when I was reading this speech that Victoria Woodhull gives in 1871 that we'll come back to later um, is that Dan Savage is considered sort of like a, a radical, right, in, in terms of his politics and his opinions on things. And um, this is actually something that he literally says, this idea that um, that you can love as long or as short a period as you can, that you can have sort of you can be you don't have to be um, in order to have loving relationships. You don't have to be monogamous for your entire life. You can have a series of very happy, successful m monogamous relationships, but that end. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's one of the things that he argues is that we we are very invested in the idea, whether you're married or not married or whatever, that the only way to actually be happy and satisfied and fulfilled is to be with one person for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And he tries to kind of make the argument that like. You can have fulfilling relationships that are temporary. Yes. Um, and that's what Victoria Woodhull was trying to say in 1870. And it's still, people still are kind of like, whoa, what? Now. Yes. So. But it's also easier when you're young and you look good so you can be attractive. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's probably true. So uh, anyway, in 1868, Victoria experienced another vision where a man this time appeared before her and he said his name was <laughs> Demosthenes and told her that he was there to be her spirit guide. He also said in no uncertain terms that she was to move to New York City. Again, she had they had been in New York City and, and then, then they left. had kind of left. Yeah. yeah, so they they had been traveling all over. Well, because, you know, they killed someone with their cure. Yes. Um, where so in in New York City there would be a home waiting for her to conduct business. The entire Claflin family moved. I guess she'd reconnected with them. Yes, and that's one of the things that it, that's confusing about this is that they're constantly coming Estranged back together, and re yeah. reunited. Yeah, and it wasn't long before they found a new venture again organized by Bucky. Buck arranged a meeting with Cornelius Vanderbilt. 
Well done, Buck. I know. Well I know. Isn't that wild? That like yeah. Buck Claflin is a nobody. Like, and he's he's worse than a nobody. Like, he is a bad dude, he's right? A bad dude. But he's such a con man mm-hmm. that he he convinces Cornelius Vanderbilt partly because he he knows that Cornelius Vanderbilt was a spiritualist, mm. and he convinces him to have a meeting. And Tenny was famous. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So at this point, Cornelius Vanderbilt is seventy something year old shipping magnate and Gilded Age millionaire. Um, he had lost a son during the Civil War, and his wife had just also recently died. So he was rumored at that point to be dabbling in spiritualism. And Buck offered up Vicky and Tenny to him on a silver platter, essentially. Vanderbilt was easily won over, especially by charming 22-year-old Tennessee, who eased his aches and pains with her spirit healing. Spirit healing. Blowjobs. Right. Yes. Uh, you know, we don't have proof that they were sexually connected, but... That does make you feel nice. Her spirit healings involved um, massage. Mm. We do know that. So. We do know that. Okay. Naked massage. Probably. It's the best way to massage, obviously. Victoria became a kind of confidant, helping the businessman deal with his troublesome family members uh, and business dealings. Wealthy Vanderbilt also started paying the sisters, not only in wages, but in stock tips. Victoria took the inside information and shared it with Colonel Blood, who made the investments uh, or sales. And soon the Woodhull Claflin trio were raking in cash. Trio? Shouldn't there be? Well, it's. What about Blood? It's the, it's the trio. It's Victoria, Tenny, and Blood. Are so the, they've cast the, off Bucky. Well, yes and no. Hmm. They Buck was like a constant kind of hanger on that they were always trying to shake. And the rest of the Claflins were like picture like the Clampets, right? Like they were just like this unruly family mm-hmm. where like people were always coming and going and like you know one sister would fall on hard times and rejoin the family and then get married again and leave again. And so it was always at its core the three of them, and then mm-hmm. sometimes Annie or Anna and and Buck were living with them, and other times they weren't. Other times they were traveling, so mm-hmm. it was just uh, it's it was really difficult in this to track like where everybody w- was all the time. We so. shouldn't even try, right? So the influx of cash gave Victoria the freedom to get involved in her next big passion, which was the women's rights movement. By the time she entered the scene, the women's rights movement in the United States was around 20 years old, dominated by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony, Lucy Stone, and Lucretia Mott, the same reformers who had spearheaded the 1848 Seneca Falls Convention. But the movement had fractured after the Civil War, when the formerly close group differed bitterly over the issue of black men's suffrage as proposed in the 15th Amendment. This is sort of the infamous moment in the women's rights movement where these very um, forward-thinking women reveal just how invested in white privilege they were um, and when they kind of throw black uh, Americans under the bus in their quest to get the right to vote. There were also major disagreements within the movement over what the movement should be focusing on. Most of the activists wanted to focus specifically on the vote, keep that the not not just the central issue, but the only issue of the women's rights movement. But a few wanted to expand their efforts to fight for increased economic and civil rights for women. Victoria was frustrated by the movement initially. It was too polite, it was too restrained, and it was too focused on the vote. She wanted a revolution, not a single right. 
So while she was working her way into the ranks of the women's suffrage movement, Victoria, Tennessee, and Colonel Blood were also moving into their next business venture. In 1870, they opened Woodhull, Claflin & Co., the first female-led brokerage firm in American history, and Victoria and Tennessee, the first female stockbrokers. They worked the fortune they made advising Vanderbilt to buy and sell stocks, all with careful advice from Cornelius Vanderbilt. They were a sensation. Uh, men's business magazines were enthralled with the pair, who they described as alternately fascinating and disgusting, uh, both sort of genius ingenues and mannish whores yeah and i'm just gonna pause here for one second to say that every business venture that they they take on throughout this period of their lives in the 1870s um it was the three of them it was blood victoria and tenny but it's only victoria and tenny's names that go on anything and Mm. she never called herself uh by his last name so she in some places you'll see other people refer to her as Victoria Woodhull, Victoria Claflin Woodhull Blood, mm. um, but she generally did not refer to herself by that in that way, which I think is really interesting. It gives you some insight too. When I said that her her husbands enjoyed sharing her, mm. Colonel Blood was very, um, very invested in her being sort of the the more. Um, public and powerful person in their partnership yeah. do you know what i mean mm-hmm. um and i mean that sexually as well as kind of in terms of business and things Interesting. like that yeah never satisfied in 1870 victoria took another radical step she announced that she was going to run for president Good. Now, much has been made of her age. There are many people online who will argue you to death that she should not be counted as the first woman to run for president because uh, she was only 32. And you the, have to be 35. the Constitution says you have to be 35. Hmm. Um, but all American historians agree that she was the first woman to run for the highest office in the land. I mean, the whole venture was ludicrous anyway, right? Um and it's regardless of the fact that she was 32, women also couldn't vote. So whether or not women actually had the right to run for president was actually up for debate also. So to argue that she shouldn't be counted because of her age is, is incredibly stupid, in my opinion. Um, again, this whole venture was ludicrous. No woman had ever been elected to any federal office, let alone president. But this was the kind of bold step Victoria believed that the women's rights movement needed. And of course, it was also good for business. All of these things are always intertwined with her. Like she's doing everything as kind of, you know, for multiple reasons. She certainly got press, but the media was most interested in patronizingly, almost jokingly covering her campaign, almost in the same way that the press for a while covered Donald Trump. You know, there's no way that she can possibly win. But Victoria wasn't joking. She wanted to be seen as a real viable candidate and the media was failing her. So what's a girl to do, right? Well, she launched her own newspaper, for one thing. In 1870, the the trio launched Woodhull and Claflin's Weekly. Newspapers were incredibly prolific in the 19th century. There's just tons of them. Yeah, a dime a dozen. Yeah, and every niche market had its own publication. But Victoria was just as radical in her publishing as she was in her politics. Rather than market the newspaper, as people expected, just to women, she made the newspaper fit all of her many interests and businesses. 
insisting that women had varied interests and that those interests should also be interesting to men. The newspaper advertised the sisters. It advertised their campaign, their business, but most of all, Victoria and Tenny's very existence. It was a pretty brilliant tactic. Yeah, um, yeah. Soon, the best and brightest of New York society knew the name of Woodhull and Claflin. The sisters were masters of keeping the public's attention. They began to dress in a way that, in ways that were flirtatiously masculine. Instead of the fashionable open neck dresses, the two often wore neckties inspired by men's wear, and they cut their hair scandalously short. Yeah, there's some great pictures of Tennessee from this time period where she has very short hair. I mean, it's kind mm-hmm. of curly, so it's it's got some length to it, but it's for the time period. I mean, it was essentially a pixie cut. Um, also, I just said scandalously, which is not a word. Scandalous. Scandalously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Victoria was now richer and more well-known, but she was still lacking respectability in the political arena. What she needed now was an ally inside the political establishment. She found that ally in Benjamin Butler. So now I need to take just one second here to describe this guy, okay? Butler was an attorney from New Hampshire initially, but became involved in Democratic politics and the um, New Hampshire state militia before the Civil War. When the war broke out, although he had sympathized with the South during his political early political career, his loyalty was to New England. So he finangled a commission in the Union Army and he became quite famous during the war, particularly for his role in the occupation of New Orleans, uh, where he waged a war within a war against the women of New Orleans who were causing a problem by disrespecting the troops. Essentially, they would you know, the troops would be trying to like establish order and these women the women of new orleans would spit on them empty chamber pots on their heads from above um scream at them in the streets you know call them names and and ben butler um issues this very infamous um general order in new orleans that says that any woman who is engaging in this kind of behavior said will be um treated as a public woman applying her avocation, essentially saying that you're going to act like like um, bitches out here in the street. We're going to treat you like bitches. We're going to treat you like prostitutes and we're going to arrest you mm-hmm. for public indecency. Um, so after the war, Butler read the political wins and he became a Republican, the party that would have more or less complete governmental control for the next 30 or 40 years. In 1870, Butler was a member of Congress representing at that point Massachusetts. Somehow, and and I'll be honest here, I struggled to find how they met, and I could not find it in any of the sources that I have, but somehow Victoria and Ben Butler became close friends. Butler served not only as Victoria's political mentor, but also her male chaperone into American establishment politics. Victoria saw this relationship as a tremendous opportunity. What she wanted was to speak about women's suffrage before Congress. Right. She's always taking it up a notch. It's not good enough for her to just kind of give public speeches. She wants to go right to the source. Butler did not think that this was a good idea, but um, he tries to compromise with her and, and told her that he would happily read an address written by her before Congress on her behalf. She changed his mind somehow. She wrote in her diary only this. I went at night and asked him to open the committee to me. 
So I wonder what she did to get him to change his mind. Because she opened her committee to him. I think she did. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I just also have to say here that Ben Butler was ugly AF. Okay. Mm -hmm. Ben Butler looked like an old bulldog. Well, and that's she she was extremely skilled in getting her way. She knew how to manipulate people. And that's not to say that she mistreated Ben Butler or took advantage of Ben Butler, but she used the resources that she had on hand to get her to get what she wanted. She showed him her ankles. (laughs) Yes, I think so. That's the way you do it. So the speech was a success. Um, It helped to cement Victoria's place in suffragist circles. Although the old guard was a little unsure of what to make of these two beautiful, sensual women suddenly thrust into their ranks. But Victoria's beauty and flashy background as both a newspaper woman and a stockbroker and a spiritualist and a healer helped draw attention to the movement. Susan B. Anthony and Katie, Elizabeth Katie Stanton were enamored with her. Increased attention also meant increased criticism, Woodhull and Claflin's Weekly was regularly attacked in the establishment newspapers, including Horace Greeley's The New York Tribune. In May 1871, Victoria was the keynote speaker at the National Women's Suffrage Association's annual convention in Washington, D.C. She spoke about the need for women's rights and for suffrage, but also talked about her campaign for president, taking her previous speeches on the subject one step further. This time, she laid out a platform for a new political party called the Cosmopolitical Party, Yeah, Mm. (laughs) where they drink Cosmos. Yes. Mm -hmm. Sounds like my kind of political party. Mm -hmm. It would advocate for extreme reforms to politics and governments, uh, things like term limits, etc., as well as an eight-hour workday, economic reform, a huge welfare program. Uh, the abolition of the death penalty, national public education, plus international law and peacekeeping forces. Um, side note, this is all wild. Because these are still things, obviously, that we're, like, debating today. Yeah, like abolishing the death penalty. Yeah, right. right. It's yeah. it's still a hotly contested Or welfare. Issue. Yeah. yeah. And some of these are things that we eventually ended up getting. Yeah, she's kind of presaging things that... Like in an international law and peacekeeping force. So maybe she, you know, Demosthenes, he showed her the way. Exactly, yeah. But the press's takeaway from her speech was really only one thing, right? They they don't pay attention to any of these very um, interesting and important reforms that she's proposing. Instead, they focus on her advocacy for free love. This was radical for a number of reasons, but one was that Victoria made this not just about divorce or about sex, but about freedom. She argued not only for the right to do with her body what she wanted, but she's arguing that marriage was inherently repressive and should be abolished. This caused some controversy within the suffrage movement. Most suffragists were nowhere near this radical, but if they disavowed Victoria's positions publicly, it would undermine the momentum that they had garnered with her popularity. And at this point, 
Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony are getting up there in years. And so Victoria has brought this infusion of life into this aging movement. So they're they're hesitant to um to cut to to um what's the word with her? To they're hesitant to part ways with her. But there were more problems, of course. In 1871, Victoria and Tenney's mother, Anna, charged Colonel Blood with assault, claiming that he told her he was going to kill her. The resulting trial was a gold mine for the media, who knew that the public ate up news about the wacky Claflin Woodhull crew. The trial brought much of the family's dirty laundry out to air. For the first time, for example, the public discovered that Victoria was divorced and that blood had also been divorced, but that they had been married and divorced and then remarried. And then at times her former husband, the heel and jerk and douchebag overall, Channing Woodhull, had lived with them. Yeah, it's just it's just whack. Like this whole thing is just wacky. Right. Yeah. Apparently he was old and sick and needed cares, which they right. provided because they took care of him. They're ultimately good people. Yeah. Unlike him. Uh, proper society was scandalized and, frankly, disgusted by Victoria's drama. Victoria wrote a long letter to the editors of the New York Times defending her belief in free love and her divorces, but it really only served to tie her closer to her scandalous past. Yeah. In 1870, the beloved, genteel Christian author Harriet Beecher Stowe, who's famous for writing Uncle Tom's Cabin, wrote a short story called My Wife and I, in which a character whose name is Audacia Danger Eyes <laughs> is... Um, is an outspoken, brash feminist who drinks and smokes and bosses men around, insisting on taking the more masculine role in relationships. It was very transparently about Woodhall. It also was pointed in its suggestion that women like Woodhall were an affront to proper Christian society and a threat to order. This story was interesting for another reason. Harriet Beecher Stowe's brother, Henry Ward Beecher, was America's leading preacher. He was the Billy Graham or the Joel Osteen of his day. The Beechers were a clan that, in most respects, were the opposite of the Claflin Woodhall, Claflin Woodhall blood, I guess, clan. They were a family of Christian authors, speakers, and pastors with a national reputation for piety and reform work. They were the probably the most famous American Protestant Christians of the day. But the problem was that Henry, the scion of the family, was also a philandering bastard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Henry Ward Beecher had been having an ongoing affair with his friend, Theodora Tilton's wife, uh, Elizabeth, or Lib. This was the only one of Beecher's many affairs. Yeah, and he didn't have affairs with, like, randos. He always had affairs with the wives of people he knew. What a dick. So there was, like, there was something there. There was, like, a power component or something, you know. I'll save you from hell if you let me diddle your wife. Yeah. What a shit. Yes. Lib Tilton confessed the affair to her husband, who went to his friends in the women's rights movement, including Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And eventually the story got back to Victoria Woodhull. And Victoria was pissed. Uh, eventually, oh, sorry. After all, the Beecher clan had essentially pill pilloried her in the press for sins of divorce and free love. And Victoria had a very powerful weapon she could use to seek revenge. Her own newspaper. Mm -hmm. oh. The Beechers knew this. 
and began a, a campaign to either shame or bully Victoria into keeping the information to herself. Specifically, Henry Ward Beecher's sister, the now elderly writer Catherine Beecher. Her, his other sister. His other, other sister. <laughs> yes. Um, who convinced Victoria to accompany her t- on a carriage ride to discuss the issue. How genteel. Right. Yeah. Uh, it did not end well. Before they parted, Catherine said, Remember, Victoria Woodhull, that I shall strike you dead. And uh, Woodhull, Victoria, coolly responded, Strike as much and as hard as you please, only don't do it in the dark, so I cannot know who is my enemy. Oh, I get it. Damn. Yeah. Damn. And because this is uh, Victoria Woodhull we're talking about, things just got more complicated from there. At the same time, Victoria was in an unrelated incident, introduced to Theodore Tilton, the cuckold at the center of the scandal that the Beechers were desperately trying to control. Now, Tilton had been Henry Ward Beecher's longtime assistant and religious devotee. He was a passionate Christian, um, an abolitionist and a reformer. And after the Civil War, Tilton had become a journalist. But as his marriage crumbled, he wrote an article for one of the newspapers that he worked for, declaring that marriage without love was a sin, which sounded an awful lot like free love and for which he was promptly fired. Tilton was romantic, passionate, and a very handsome man. So it should come as no real surprise then that the two quickly became lovers. Victoria became even more forceful in the press, calling out the double standard that she saw. Women like her were raked over the coals, while men, like Beecher, could act as they pleased when it came to sex and marriage with no consequences. When she was attacked in return, now she wasn't alone, right? Tilton came in like a white knight, using his respectable reputation to defend her in the newspapers. And in the midst of all this, Victoria Woodhull and her sister Tennessee weren't so distracted as to neglect their political ventures. In 1871, Tennessee declared that she was running for Congress in New York City's 8th District. In that year's election, Victoria and Tenney tried to vote, but were, of course, turned away by polling officials. Uh, But the Beecher-Tilton affair remained their central problem and their central power. Never one to let a moment pass, Victoria asked Beecher to come directly to her for a chat. Mm-hmm. She summoned him. <laughs> come to me. Come hither. What she wanted was for Beecher to agree to introduce her when she gave a speech scheduled for just a few days in the future where she would talk about free love. Essentially, she said, do this. You also believe in free love or you wouldn't be fucking all these ladies who aren't your wife. So own it, you asshole. Basically, yeah. Or I'll use this platform to out your relationship with Lib Tilton. Literally, she says to him, uh, I have this scheduled. I don't know what I'm going to say yet. I haven't written the speech. So depending on what you choose is how I'm going to write this speech. Mm. Later, she wrote, he got up on the sofa on his knees beside me and taking my face between his hands while the tears were streaming down his cheeks, begged me to let him off. Becoming thoroughly disgusted with what seemed to me high pusillanimity. No, his pusillanimity. 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 His pusillanimity. Anonymity? 
Pusillanimity. Pusillanimity. <laughs> his. His. Uh, with what seemed to me his pusillanimity, which is not a word. Yes. Pusillanimity. 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 <laughs> anyway, I left the room under the control of a feeling of contempt for the man and reported to my friends what he had said. Victoria was even more disgusted by the gall of Beecher and men like him to destroy the lives of who destroyed the lives of women um, who challenged social, social norms while expecting to be exonerated themselves. In the end, Beecher agreed to show up and also footed the bill for renting the hall for her speech. Queen! Yeah, seriously. When the day came, however, Henry Ward Beecher was a no-show. Instead, Tilton introduced her, and Victoria used her platform to rail against the hypocrisies and abuses of marriage. For instance, she said this, I would not be understood to say that there are no good conditions in the present marriage state. By no means do I say this. On the contrary, a very large proportion of present social relations are commendable, are as good as the present status of society makes possible. But what I do assert, and that most positively, is that all which is good and commendable now existing would continue to exist if marriage laws were repealed tomorrow. Do you not perceive that the law has nothing to do in continuing the relations which are based on continuous love? In total, Victoria Woodhall talked for two hours, arguing for non-monogamy and sexual freedom and women's equality. It's really stunning to think of even, it's really stunning to think of, I mean, even now, this would still be considered completely radical even a hundred years later. The result was good for Victoria and bad for Tilton. Uh, Tilton suddenly became the 19th century version of a cuck. Right. Cuck holding. Well, this this like term that people use politically now, yeah. right? Like a, a man who's emasculated by um, by liberal politics and women. Yeah. So newspapers referred to him then thereafter as Theodore Woodhull, a man emasculated by a woman who was not even his wife. And they didn't even know that he was actually being cuckolded. Right. Like that part of the story mm. wasn't even out. Mm. They're just talking about the fact that he's being sort of emasculated by Victoria. Mm. The speech raised Victoria's profile even further, and she entered the lecture circuit repeating the lecture, not so much because people loved it, but because they wanted to hear it for themselves. And as a side note, you know, just because there's not enough going on here. Right. Yeah. Uh, Victoria and Tennessee discovered a little German publication in 1871 and decided to publish it in Woodhull and Claflin's weekly. It was none other than Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto. It was the first time that the Communist Manifesto was printed in the United States. In English. Yeah, in Woodhull and Claflin's weekly. Interesting, or increasingly, they were adding labor and the rights of workers to their political platform, which served to drive a wedge between themselves and the old guard of the women's rights movements, which really believed that the vote had to be the single issue of their action. So by 1872, uh, the queens of the movement, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, had disavowed Victoria Woodhull. Yeah, and we'll, and we'll see there more of why that is, but um, that's a major part of it. 
So cut off from the National Women's Suffrage Association, Victoria officially ran for president. You know, she had um, announced her intentions in 1870, but in um, 1871, she makes this official. She officially runs for president on the um, Equal Rights Party ticket. Uh, in May 1871, she was officially nominated by the party. Frederick Douglass was nominated for vice president to be her running mate, but they they didn't tell him. They like didn't tell him right away, and he never officially accepted his nomination. He had nothing to do with it. He didn't publicly comment on it at all. Things at the time were not going well for Victoria. Her bold speeches about free love might have garnered publicity, but it was all bad publicity. Further, she and Tilton had grown distant because he did not help her campaign. Instead, he decided to try to get Democrat Horace Greeley, her old enemy, the editor of the New York Tribune, who had published all of this, you know, criticism of her. He was trying to get him elected instead, partly because he thinks that if Horace Greeley gets elected, he's going to get his job. He'll become the editor of the New York Tribune, which doesn't happen. Uh, her daughter, Zulu Maud, was kicked out of her fancy private school because of Victoria's politics. At the same time, her sister, Tennessee, decided that she wanted to become the new colonel of the New York Guard, <laughs> of a regiment of the New York Guard, I should say, um, sort of a, a militia organization in New York State. And she decided to run to command the 85th Regiment, which was an all-black unit. After a stirring speech where she promised to lead them into battle if necessary and um, emphasizing her commitment to black civil rights, she was voted in by the men and became Colonel Tennessee Claflin of the 85th (laughs) New York State Guard. Just, I mean, they were never like these people didn't sleep like they just were constantly stirring up trouble. So with Victoria running for president, supported by a black male vice president, at least ostensibly, and Tenney, the colonel of a unit of black guardsmen, this, they, the press shredded the sister both with gendered and racial slurs. Then their landlord, finally fed up with all of this controversy, evicted the family. So now desperate, Victoria used again the major weapon in her arsenal, Henry Ward Beecher. He later wrote that Victoria had come to him whining and that he replied very briefly saying, I regretted when anybody suffered persecution for the advocacy of their sincere views, but then I must decline interference. And that was the last straw for her. Her family eventually found new, nice, less nice lodging, but she decided she'd had enough with the hypocritical Beechers. So on September 11th, 1872, she gave a campaign speech in Boston, which was Beecher's hometown, where she unleashed the entire story of the Beecher-Tilton affair. Stunned, the audience didn't really know what to do. Unsatisfied with this reaction, Victoria decided to take it up a notch. A few weeks later, Woodhull and Claflin's Weekly published a mock interview with Victoria where she detailed the entire salacious story. But this didn't work out the way that Victoria had envisioned. Rather than vindicating her or bringing about some kind of righteous justice, the whole thing blew back on her. First of all, no one really believed the charges against Beecher. He just had too much power and too much respect, and his followers didn't want to believe that this could be true. Within days, 
a certain individual also got wind of the story, an individual who we have talked about before on this very show. His name was dun 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 Anthony Comstock. This whole saga takes place in 1872, actually just before his namesake law, the Comstock law, was passed. But at this time, in 1872, Comstock was a crusader for the YMCA, or the Young Men's Christian Association, which was dedicated to ridding society of vice. Comstock made it a personal mission to root out dens of iniquity and violations of obscenity laws. When he saw something, such as a storefront selling pornography, he tipped off the police and then would personally accompany the police as they made raids. Now, he had been trying to shut Victoria and Tennessee down since they launched, mostly because they often printed ads for birth control methods. When he saw the issue of Vic- of Woodhall and Claflin's Weekly with the story of Henry Ward Beecher and Lib Tilton's affair, it set off all his obscenity alarm bells. On November 2nd, just days after the story hit the newsstands, police officers showed up at newspapers at the newspaper's offices and arrested Victoria Woodhall, Tennessee Claflin, Colonel Blood, and several of their printers. They were held on $8,000 bail and held in the Ludlow Street Jail. No one, not Theodore Tilton or the suffragists or Ben Butler or Cornelius Vanderbilt, no one came to their defense. Their printing presses were dismantled and destroyed. When the nation cast their ballot, just three days later, on November 5th, in the presidential election, voters wrote her name in as the candidate for the Equal Rights Party ticket while she was in jail. From her jail cell, Victoria penned a fiery message to the public, published in the New York Herald, arguing that the reason she was behind bars was essentially, as we might call it today, sexism and slut-shaming. She ended it this way. The great public danger, then, is not in my exposure of the immoralities that are constantly being committed, but in the fear that their enactors will be shown up to those who are distilling poisons and digging pitfalls for it, um, that they're in danger and will remain so as long as I live. And since this is known, the danger must be removed at whatever cost of public justice or private right. To the public, I would say, let me warn them and you that from the ashes of my body, a thousand Victorias will spring to avenge my death by seizing the work laid down by me and carry it forward to victory. A month after they were arrested, Victoria and Tenney were released after each paying $16,000 in fine. Yeah. They had it. $16,000 in 1872 is a, is a lot of money. It's a lot of moves. The saga wasn't over, however. Comstock was not satisfied, as he as he never was. In January, using a pseudonym, he wrote a letter to the newspaper asking for a copy of the issue about the Beecher-Tilton affair. They obliged, mailing several copies of the newspaper back to him. And just like that, he had entrapped them again and showed up at the offices with police officers ready to arrest them. Um on obscenity charges that said that it was illegal to, to mail obscene material. They arrested Colonel Blood this time, but Victoria and Tenney weren't there. The colonel, uh, before he was hauled in, managed to send word to Victoria that an arrest was imminent, but she was scheduled to give a speech that night at the Cooper Institute. Determined to still speak, 
Victoria was aided by women's rights activists and spiritualists who helped her sneak into the hall in disguise, then blocked the aisles so the police couldn't get to the stage to arrest her. When she was done speaking, she allowed herself very dramatically to be arrested. She was hauled back to the Ludlow Street Jail and joined Colonel Blood. Tenney evaded capture until the following week. The trio bailed themselves out, spending another several thousand dollars, only to be arrested again on entirely different libel charges days later. This process continued for months. The sisters and the colonel would bail themselves out, only to be arrested again on slightly different charges. In June, they went to trial on obscenity charges, where they were acquitted when their lawyer pointed out that the obscenity law Comstock had initially arrested them under did not actually apply to newspapers, uh, although his brand new 1873 Comstock law would. It, it did. At this point, did. the Comstock law had just been oh, okay. approved, but the law that he arrested them under was not didn't include newspapers. Yeah. So, whoops. Um, and a year later, in 1874, they were also acquitted on the libel charges. The continued arrests, fines, and bail payments strained the Woodhall-Claflin coffers to their limit. And in 1873, the stock market crashed, resulting in the panic of 1873, what, essentially what 19th century Americans called recessions. They called them panics. Victoria had tried to re-enter the world of spiritualism, knowing this was something she could fall back on, but the spiritualist organizations were deeply divided over whether or not she was an appropriate spokeswoman. Many spiritualists resented Victoria's political ambitions and her radical beliefs. In 1874, the Claflin-Woodhall-Blood clan were dragged back into the drama of the Beecher-Tilton affair, which had been simmering under the radar for years. Uh, and now suddenly boiled over. Tilton had been kicked out of the church that Beecher led, and another pastor gave a public sermon about how terrible Tilton was. Fed up, now Theodore Tilton himself published the story, but this time he brought the receipts, including a very incriminating note from Beecher that uh, more or less amounted to a confession. The church that he was the pastor of held its own investigation into the matter, but with the committee hand-chosen by Beecher, it unsurprisingly exonerated its pastor. Beyond over this nonsense at this point, Tilton took things up a notch and sued Beecher for alienation of affection, demanding $100,000 in damages. And at the same time, a former Woodhull and Claflin Weekly employee published a tell-all expose on Victoria, accusing her of being a fraud who didn't write any of her pioneering editorials or speeches. It suggested that she was little more than an enterprising prostitute, which confirmed everything that the scandalized public wanted to hear about Victoria and Tenney. It was not the PR that Victoria needed when she was so desperately trying to get back on top after her years of court cases, jail visits, scandals, and controversies. She tried to escape the Beecher-Tilton affair, but in 1875, she was subpoenaed as a witness in Tilton's suit. But despite everything they knew about the affair and all their conversations and dealings with Beecher, Tilton's case really boiled down to hearsay. The case resulted in a hung jury... Tilton was bankrupted and ruined, and Beecher, whose congregation paid his legal fees, more or less got off scot-free. Yeah, he, he really paid no consequence for it. Victoria's career was hanging by a thread. 
For the next few years, she wrote and lectured, but largely on religious issues. Um, But even then, the spiritualists didn't want to hear from her anymore. In 1875, she finally resigned her leadership position with the spiritualist organizations. And in 1876, Woodhall and Claflin's Weekly was forced to shut down for a lack of cash. Also in 1876, Victoria and Colonel Blood finally divorced again for good. Again, I I have no idea whether they were, how many times they were married and remarried and divorced. Mm. Um, But in 1876, either way, they parted ways officially. Um, in 1877, when Cornelius Vanderbilt died, his son paid Victoria and Tenney $100,000, probably to keep them quiet about the elder Vanderbilt's proclivities and spiritualist leanings. This was just the windfall they needed, and they left the United States for a fresh start in Europe. Victoria continued to lecture. At one talk, she met a successful Oxford-educated man named John Biddulph Martin and fell deeply in love. And during their courtship, the never-ending saga of the Beecher-Tilton affair flared again when Lib Tilton finally admitted that it was all true. Yeah. Terrified that she would get dragged back through the mud and that it would destroy her chance at a marriage to Martin, she published a lengthy newspaper. Yes, she created a newspaper for one edition (laughs) right she framed the entire story so that she herself was utterly blameless even amazingly denying that she had ever embraced the ideal of free love um either martin was convinced or he just didn't give a because they married in 1883 yeah and this is this is pretty remarkable that she tries to deny that she ever was involved in any of these things when she gave many speeches in especially that one in 1871 where she talks about how marriage itself should be abolished Uh and then she tries to be like oh no 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 i was never a free lover no 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 i wasn't please marry me rich martin um in the end the sisters lived out the rest of their lives in privilege and with far less drama tennessee met and married francis cook who was the viscount of montserrat portugal Soon after their marriage, he was created the first baronet cook, making Tenny, born in squalor in Ohio, Lady Cook. Yeah. Victoria began a second, maybe uh, maybe we should say third, newspaper in 1895 called The Humanitarian, aided by her daughter Zulu Maud. This is when she's living in Great Britain. The newspaper dealt with issues of health and reform, particularly picking up the cause of children, pointing out the hypocrisy, which was one of Victoria's favorite pastimes, um, such as the huge budget of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty Toward Animals and the tiny budget of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty Toward Children. In 1901, when Martin died, Victoria and Zulu Maud moved to a tiny British village to live an even quieter life. They tried their hand at establishing a school that would be dedicated to teaching women how to be farmers, um, but that failed. The two helped to bring about reform in the British country schools and sometimes gave interviews, but mostly lived in quiet obscurity. Zulu was her mother's companion, helping to care for Victoria's disabled son, Byron. In June 1927, Victoria Woodhall died quietly in her sleep. She left a small fortune for Zulu and Byron, and her ashes were sprinkled in the Atlantic Ocean, somewhere between England and America. 
I don't even know what to add to that story. Like, typically we try to have like a little conversation about what we've just, you know, what we've just presented. And um, but it speaks volumes for itself. Really. Yeah, there's there's almost nothing to add. I mean, her life was it was just bonkers. Was there's bonkers, there's yeah. so much in it. And to me, one of the things I love most about Victoria Woodhall is that her because her life is so <laughs> complex and has so much in it it just seems to capture the 19th century to me mm-hmm. you know it's got everything from you know second great awakening religion and new religious movements and you know radical politics to um to sex and prostitution in new york city I mean, it's it's just bonkers. But also being named for Queen Victoria. Yeah, and yeah. And the definer of the Victorian era. Yeah, absolutely. Even while everything about her life undermined Victorianism. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's wonderful. Right. It's like she's a fictional character. It is. It it truly is. And um, one thing that I do want to say is that um, I mentioned on Twitter the other day that I was writing this copy. Yeah. And... Um, uh, historian that we've met and and had kind of um what's the word that we've with just kidding (laughs) that we've um we actually did a panel on how to be a historian in public with um ann little who's known on the internet on the interwebs as historian pointed out to me in in a twitter exchange you know just how um how Victoria Woodhall is almost not even like she was so wild that we should be talking about her all the time. Yeah. Like she historians should be researching this woman constantly and writing about her in all different kinds of ways. Um, and they don't. And she sort of speculated that maybe this is because she's still too radical for us. Mm. Like she's there's so much there and so much of what she advocated for is still radical now mm-hmm. um, that that it's almost too hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost too hard to take her on um, and to really explore all of the ways that her all the implications of her life and her actions. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's really I don't know in, in what I read about her in the past couple of weeks as I was putting this episode together sort of rings true to me because yeah. i Got a couple of books. I'm sure that there's many. I'm sure that there are scholars out there who have written articles and things like that. Yeah. But I, I really managed to find two books, hmm. biographies, more or less, of her. Um, and they were a couple decades old at this mm-hmm. point, maybe oh, written in the early 2000s, 1990s. One of them, I think, was a little older than that. Um, and, you know, they were biographies they were quite straightforward they didn't try to sort of unpack the larger implications one of them did do more um sort of a explored the backgrounds of all of the many people involved in the beecher tilton case you know Mm -hmm. talks a lot more about tilton's background and lib tilton and their their marriage and does go into those kinds of aspects but doesn't kind of unpack all of these other things in her life yeah and so if you're out there and you're thinking about an interesting project, there's there's a lot, a lot here. Yeah. yeah. Just like two years of her life. Yeah, exactly. Between like 1868 and 1878, more or less. Yeah. You know, um, she packed a lot in and she went from rags to riches to rags to riches, you know, yeah. over and over again. And she never she never stopped. Mm-hmm. And she was pilloried. She was destroyed. She was trashed in the media. Um, and she took it and she pointed out 
those hypocrisies that we're still struggling to point out, that we're still trying yeah. struggling to prove, especially in the 2016 presidential campaigns. Right. Um, the things that were said about Vic- about Victoria Woodhull, the things that were said about Hillary Clinton, um, just so mm-hmm. um, reflect what happened to Victoria Woodhull. I mean, she was portrayed as a devil, as yeah. Satan. You know, um, this singular sort of threat to the American public um, in ways that you know our current president can can do things that are far worse. Yep. I think objectively, mm-hmm. I mean, unless you're really, really a, a supporter, um, objectively far worse than Hillary Clinton ever did. Um, and yet he's not held to the same standard in terms of right. um, the, the, the public and the media. So, you know, I just I, it's it's fascinating. It's also a little disheartening to look back in the 1870s and see that this 50 years. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We haven't made all that much progress. That. Yeah. yeah. It's true. Yeah. So um, I would one last plug that I want to make is that during 2016 and the lead up to that election, um, Nursing Cleo, which Avril and I both um, work for and help to edit for, um, did a series on women who ran for president Mm -hmm. between Victoria Woodhull in 1872 and Hillary Clinton, obviously, in 2016. And each woman who ran has their own really interesting essay about them put together by a different historian uh, a different writer one of those essays obviously is about victoria woodhull written by our friend lauren mcivor thompson um we really recommend you read it and if you're once you're there once you read it you you got to read the other ones um you know all of these all of these women who ran for president on varying different political platforms um it's a really great series. It was called Run Like a Girl. So mm-hmm. we recommend that you read those. If you're interested in Victoria Woodhull, you'll be interested in them as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Other than that, make sure that you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts, yeah. that you take a minute to review us if you have a chance. We'd love five stars because they help other new listeners find us on the podcast world. Yes, please, please, Ether. please. Uh, show notes for the reading full transcript of this episode mm-hmm. is at digpodcast.org you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest um, at dig underscore history yeah that's right and um, <laughs> if you are like into us or whatever <laughs> um, that sounded creepy you can join our secret dig history pod squad on facebook and marissa will meme your face no she'll give you a historical meme yeah yeah, yeah. to introduce you to everyone yeah it's actually i would say it's it's a really fun group yeah it's picking up um with activity yeah and it's a great place where if um if we say something in an episode that intrigues you or that you want to know more about or Mm -hmm. you say like oh my gosh that reminds me of this thing that you know is relevant to my life or like my grandpappy was victoria woodhull's paper boy i don't know or like Catherine lawton will always think about the things that we say and then go do some research and then post the things that she finds yeah 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 group yeah which is nice yeah and then other people just you know also post like memes and things about stuff in their lives it's, yeah it's whatever you want it to be it's great it, it's a great chance for us personally like to get to know our listeners like yeah it's it's awesome to mm-hmm. to see that people are actually listening and thinking about what we're saying it's a great way for you to you know 
add your two cents to the conversation. I mean, yeah. if we say something that you think we've interpreted it wrong or you want us to like read something else, like let us know. Like that's um, it's really it's it's a fun group. So join it us. Is. Yeah. And other than that, until next time, I guess I'm Avril. And I am Sarah. You are. I am. And thanks for joining us. Goodbye. Wait, what is what? What, what does Anchorman say? Stay classy, San Diego. <laughs> yes. San Diego. It means Spanish well, vagina. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think it just means Saint Diego. Uh, I don't know. Thanks. Bye. This podcast was produced by the historians of Dig, Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, Sarah Hanley Cousins, Marissa Rhodes, and me, Avril Earls. Thanks for listening. He got up on the sofa on his keens, his knees. <laughs> I didn't know if he had Keens. If those were his pants. I don't know. Keens are actually kind of Okay. No, on his knees. (laughs) On his knees. Okay. (laughs) On his keens. Sorry. We're going to have to bleep that fucking. Yeah, that's fine. Sorry. It's good stuff. At least I got drive. Yeah, I know. For you jerks. Dragging you out of the Stone Age. Yeah, because I have Dropbox and not Drive. (laughs) Yeah. What is this? 2013, Sarah? (laughs) Jesus. She was enraged that he, that she hungry. (laughs) That she hungry. (laughs) That she was hungry. Okay. But that was a different episode we talked about. Ow, mother. (laughs) Did you just get shot? That thing just attacked me. Plus, she grew up in a family that paid no respect to the law and disregarded the way that quote unquote things were done. This is. Let me do that again because that sounds stupid. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.